is the last podcast before Christmas and all through the house, not a subject was stirring. Not even, well, actually, Michelle Moen and the outrageous lying over the PPE contracts. All that that's beginning to uh, pull apart in a Tory party that is now five tribes. The Labour Party's inability to really create clear blue or red water between itself and a dismantled party of government. Uh, we look as well at the horror that is Gaza and how that's disfigured this year and changed international politics. Um, we look too at the Scottish budget that has just been delivered. So all of that, plus some reminiscences of a positive nature on 2023. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi, chums, and welcome to the this the last Leslie Ruddick podcast of uh, 2023. He sighed. <laughs> hmm. a year. I don't think I don't think any of us will be desperate to leave behind us. And what we've done yet again, and we keep doing this, is we say we're going to do our normal time. We're going to do the podcast at the regular time, and then something comes along and we do it later. Usually hoping that we're going to be a bit further forward in understanding what's happened and be able to comment upon it for those of you who kindly listen to the podcast every week. We just listened to the uh, Shona Robinson. Uh, delivering the uh, the budget statement for the Scottish Government for 2024. Lots of stuff in it. However, however, <laughs> neither of us could actually identify if the Fraser of Islander Institute is correct, where the 1.5 billion black hole that's constantly referred to in the, the Scottish budget, which the, Scot the Scottish Government has to produce a balanced budget each year, where's that 1.5 billion going to come from? Because there's lots of interesting stuff in there to do with tax rises, bringing in minimal amounts, but nothing as far as I could identify where that money was going to come from. Well, there was, yeah, there was bits, but she kept, you know, she, and she started as she was going along. I should say this really feels like we're flying blind, you know, because mm -hmm. we're yes. recording this at 3.30 and we had a wee discussion as to whether we should wait for four o'clock for some grown-ups to come on Radio Scotland <laughs> <laughs> and have yeah. a wee shifty at, you know, certain people on Twitter. Uh, but everyone's still sort of digesting it at the moment. So really apologies to us if we're just, you know, if we're wrong. There's the word we're looking for. Uh, mm. But, you know, listening to it, she was going through and saying, OK, uh, they were going to leave um, the two top le le levels of tax the same, which basically means this is what the, the fiscal drag is, because since there's been inflation and everything, people are getting paid a bit more. There's going to be more of that kind of drifting mm -hmm. into that tax bracket. So there's £307 million. Pounds. There's going to be, uh, oh, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be this new tax band called yeah. the advanced tax band for the real high. Well, you know, there's absolutely no. wealthy people, but these are high flyers, 75,000 plus. That's going to get you 82 million. So you talk that up and you've got, you know, 389 million. And what you're looking for is 1.5 billion. Yeah. I mean, she did go through and, you know, mention a, <clears throat> a few of the other they're going to, for example, they're not they're going to fully fund the council tax freeze. Yeah. Now, people thought what might be controversial here is that the um, the predictions from and they keep citing in, you know, independent institutes, often the Fraser of Allender, sometimes other ones to sort of say, look, you know, this is like dry land, this one that we're giving you here, this figure, because this is not us that's coming up with it. But they were saying that, you know, you could say an average was about 3%, the rise, but there's Orkney wanted to rise by 10%. 
Um, and you'd have to say that apparently a quarter of Scottish councils, like a quarter of councils in England, are teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. So this is kind of serious stuff. So anyway, they could be giving them 3%, but she said, we're going to give you 5%. Yeah. So there's, you would like to think more, you know, that's kind of 140 million quid. So there's money back out your kitty again. I, I don't know. I mean, you'd need to, you, there was quite a, a number of things where you, there was, there was, n- we're not passing on the, um, the, the, the business, uh, rate cuts that have happened mm-hmm. south of the border. And already there's quite a lot of business groups and hospitality groups really bealing about that. Sort of weirdly, there is a hundred percent relief, however, yeah. for hospitality businesses on the islands. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's great. I'm sure a lot of people that live on remote bits of the mainland will feel that they have the same sort of level of problem a lot of the time. But you know, they didn't qualify for that. So, you know, there's. I, th- I thought the way that she delivered the budget, I I at least found it very comprehensible, yes. and. Um, you know, she was kind of explaining when they were going, she spent some time on the tax moves particularly mm-hmm. because she was kind of explaining that how they'd set the levels was to just exclude uh, the polis, teachers, nurses, you know, just to kind of get make sure that where they were placing cutoffs didn't pull that kind of professional into their new bands, for example. And she made the point at the beginning that, you know, and as everyone has said, the big, 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 big problem for the Scottish government is that the Westminster government chose to to put forward tax cuts instead of using the money that it had at its disposal to invest in public yeah. services. And had it done that, a proportion of that would have come to the Scottish government and that would have meant their kitty would have been larger to deal with, but they didn't do it. And I mean, one pretty graphic way she described it was to say that as a result of what Westminster have done, MSPs earn £754 more, uh, you know, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, which is ludicrous. That's not where the money should be going. Um, she says we ha- we can't we ha- we can't en- enact a corporation tax. We can't enact a windfall tax on anything, and we can't en- embark on wealth taxes. Now, I don't know if you're ready to to go on to the deeper stuff yet. <laughs> yeah, well, say. I mean. Yeah, because, I mean, these were the things that she said she couldn't do. And it says, right, I think the, I think I, I did understand from but uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that it was going to be a 1p extra uh, yep. levied on the, the top, the top band. You know, so that that was a 1p one there. But it yes, was that. that it was that, get, that's the one yeah, that would get your 82 million. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but it is that that, that whole thing about the, the dependency in a devolved administration on the Barnet formula, the way that operates again, these the the block grant that, that does come to Scotland, which I mean took an absolute battering during the years of austerity, when it when it plummeted in terms of uh, its ability, you know, to, it didn't it just didn't keep up at all. So even within every devolved settlement, the, what you're utterly dependent upon are the UK government decisions, and she focused on that. And I thought the way she actually embarked on about about uh, the. Value 
values, constantly citing values in terms of equality and fairness, progressive taxation systems, and then pointed to those bits. And that came through quite clearly when they talk about the expansion of the free school meals, the uprating of all Scottish short of security benefits by, I think, was 6.7%. That included the the child, the, the child, the Scottish child payment, which is lifting people up out of out of these areas. But again, it was the the thing. I mean, I go back to, and we talked about it last year, and the STCUC have produced again, raising tax to deliver for Scotland. The alternatives that could be and the additional measures that could be taken under the devolved settlement that the Scottish government has in its power. Wealth taxes, they say, you could produce, they they claim that the Scottish government has the ability to to, to introduce wealth taxes and things like property wealth. Uh, and they reckon the, the yields uh, from everything taken together will be over a billion pounds. Replace the council tax with a proportional property tax, super tax on private jets, uh, tourism tax, frequent flyer tax. Taking a look at that, she, she quite clearly said they weren't going to be doing anything with the land and billion, buildings tran- transfer tax, which there are apparently £22.2 billion worth of these activities that take place in Scotland a year. We only take in £800 million from this. So that is, a, that is an extremely you know, low tax threshold to take in from that. So the STUC, and again, it's the second time they've done it, and I've, I've got, I'll put the link up to the document. It's a comprehensive document. These are just the headline elements of it. Which actually goes to show that yes, there are there are the issues of the of your currently tied to the Westminster settlement and what we're going to get through the Barnet formula. But the question is, is the Scottish government too hidebound by the economic orthodoxy that that comes from uh, from a British sensibility? And I've got a horrible sense that the, what was talked about by we're going to be working with our friends in the trade unions to look at reform of the NHS, to look at reform of local government and public services, while saying there'll be no compulsory redundancies. And it's this whole business, we're going to have fewer people and we're going to work smarter. And just how long can we go on to do this within this this framework? Her ending was very strong, I felt, which says we would do a lot of things differently if we were independent, but that doesn't get out of the, the business of saying the STUC for the second year in a row have produced, I think, a very comprehensive document saying these are the things that could be done under devolution and ask the question, why are you not doing them? Mm. And then the bigger question then is, for example, if you come back to the question of a land tax, mm-hmm. you know, if we're talking about I mean, essentially what we, we are able to do and what we spend a lot of time discussing is income tax. Yeah. So a tax on income. And what we all have developed a huge kind of, um, you know, blind spot for because it's a British blind spot is wealth. So, you know, now there's a lot of things that uh, the, the Scottish government couldn't move on in terms of a wealth ta- taxes. But land is is a huge form of wealth that is not taxed. And, you know, we've, we've had this discussion before. And when we have it, it's usually in terms of equity of, you know, managing to if you have more, if you have put a tax on land and we're unique in Europe in not having any form of tax on land and all sorts of loopholes so that large landowners are able to claim bizarrely that they're small businesses and qualify for the enduring exclusions from rates that that, that still obtain. Um, 
if you were to do something about that, and this is where, you know, it's at a time of a budget and real pressure on services and everything, it's too late then to, to think yeah. of the bigness of this, you know, because this would need to be the scale of thing that was promised in 2007. And this was Alex Salmond that promised it. And it was something Labour could have done. If all the parties in the Scottish uh, Parliament have basically pulled their punches for all sorts of reasons. And when I hear, <laughs> as you will now hear, you know, there'll be legitimate questions and points raised by all political parties about what could have happened. I notice, for example, at the moment that um, Paul Hutchin has just tweeted that um, the, the only uh, the only budget that seems to be being cut is the child poverty budget. I'm sure somebody will come back in and say, yeah, you're mm. not counting in the Scottish child payment, but whatever. Yeah. So there'll be lots of people that will make these kind of points. But here's the deal. Um, if we stick to the British pattern of taxation, which is generally speaking, you've got some statistics that were sent in by a listener on this. Yes. Totally, totally lower uh, than the amount spent on public services massively so in northwestern Europe, then you're fighting about margins and you're not having the big grown up discussions about what really ought to be taxed. You'd have to have a big conversation about that because you'd have to bust out of the British mindset that somehow thinks it's a bit like farting in the corner if you were to point <laughs> out that somebody's got an asset and they are not being taxed on it, uh, you know, an asset that they are doing as Winston Churchill pointed out about land, it's a monopoly. They ain't making more of it. And you do nothing to have its value increase. It's a perfect gift for taxation. So by not paying attention to this and kind of having it in the, ooh, it's all a bit too awkward corner, when multiple commissions have suggested that that could be part or even a whole alternative to the council tax, whose reform was promised back in 2007, yeah. You, you, you end up on a day like this where all you can do is kind of fiddle in the corner with stuff and then bring, you know, the bit that will probably land will be local government, um, the, the public servants in the public sector, sorry, public sector jobs within local government yeah. because health service is ring fenced. Yeah, I mean, and just to say this, thanks to Stuart Donald, who sent us in the, the detailed analysis and research that he'd done when looking at comparative nations, as you say, in Northwestern Europe. And for uh, these just include the Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Ireland, etc. And when you, he examined it, spending per capita on health, education and social services was nearly four times higher in these comparative nations than in Scotland and the Union. Four times higher. Yeah, and, and that's OECD uh, figures, actually. Folks. Yeah. yeah, So it's not these are these are these are not made up. And I'll I'll, I'll see if I can copy the copy the link that that, uh, that Stuart gave me to 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 give access to everybody to to have a look at this. But you're absolutely right. It is that that framework, as you say, of, of thinking in terms of of Britain. The council tax one that that. that I just it always throws me. Is it just too difficult to get to grips with? Is it yes another? Well, we'll just shove that one in the corner because everyone's got used to paying it. It's it's unquestioned, but everyone knows it's regressive. The less you earn, the more you pay. Everyone knows it's I think it's coming up to nearly thirty years out of date. Over thirty years out yes. of date in terms in terms of it, it's it's absolutely crazy, and it 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 does go back to the and I keep asking myself. What is the political capital that is, is potentially being made by not going for 
a changes in terms of wealth taxes and land taxes. What is the political capital by not doing it? I genuinely, I genuinely do not understand it. Yeah, well, I mean, we're together on that one. I, I remember at one point, because I can remember having, <laughs> you know, this is the thing, you live long enough and you can have this conversation over and over and over again. But <laughs> I can remember doing it as a subject on, on Radio Scotland um, when there was a proposal to move to a local income tax. And um, the arguments then were that the financial institutions weren't in place in Scotland. But, you know, a lot of them are now in place, you know, so maybe there was an argument there at one point. But I, you know, I don't know whether this just looks like too heavy lifting. There's already lots of, you know, problem areas. I, I really genuinely don't know. So, you know, fuckheads. Fuckheads. Yeah, fuck yeah that's a way to say fuckheads. Back in that one. <laughs> yeah, well, we just, yeah, that's the can kick down the road on that one. But I await someone who's an, a, an economist and someone, that I, I'm, looking, I'm looking at you, the Fraser Lander Institute, who will actually go through these facts and figures in terms of the, the spending commitments and the operating in terms of percentages in some areas um, and see and see where the, where the black hole can, can be filled. I mean, the and yeah, so we we again that's me just withering on because I've generally no idea. And you say wait to someone who can count to come along and do it. Now the, this this week's episode is entitled "Money, Money, Money," which is the ABBA song. Look, you see, I'm I'm going down that line, Leslie, in terms of quoting ABBA, but it could also be "Money, Money, Money." Oh. oh, you see, you see, which is uh, uh, was Tommy James and the Shondells with with Money Money, but Money Money Money. Yeah, I I watched with jaw dropping on the floor. Uh, David Barman and Baroness Moan uh, deigning to come in and be interviewed. Is it by not Laura. Douglas Bar- 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 Barrowman? Oh, it, it could be. Yes. Yeah. Where did I get Dave from? Because you've got David Barrowman is the, you know, that, guy no, used to be Doctor Who or something. That's or? John Barrowman. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, so God, yeah, yeah, woohoo! Right. Yeah, these, yeah, this, this is, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is great listening, isn't it, folks? As we struggle through, yes. Well, it was, it was Douglas Barrowman. Yeah. Um, they they didn't to be into by Laura Coonsberg. And I would just just say, oh, God, oh my, yeah, because the point it was a way to make was if I were doing an interview with two people who had been placed in that position, if I'd been the interview with the BBC, I would not refer to them by their first names throughout Miss Koonsberg. That kind of cuts away at anything that can be that can be said. But it was, a, as I say, it was a jaw-dropping experience watching it because that phrase, I didn't mean to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, with the euphemism for I was lying. And it was almost the Father Ted situation where uh, we don't have the money. It was simply resting in a trust fund account somewhere else and dancing on the head of a pin, whether who had owned what and what. But fundamentally, it came through. They were lying in their teeth throughout. They were throwing out the legal challenges to newspapers and journalists who were trying to cover it in in an appropriate fashion and trying to stifle any kind of analysis of what they'd done. And it occurred to me that I did agree with her with one thing. I think they're being used as a lightning rod to actually deflect attention from the absolute shambles of the PPE procurement and all that went on during that COVID cronyism 
uh, in terms of money being thrown at uh, pals and friends of uh, conservative politicians. Well, it does make me actually wonder, and I wonder if I just sort of missed this because I was having a hopping in and out of hospital week last week, what actually happened that finally, because every week Mm. people would be pointing out on social media, yeah, you know, there's a lot of attention paid to certain people's misdemeanours, but Michelle Moan, and of course, you know, there's nothing, nothing broke in the media. And then suddenly wallop, yeah. um, they decide to come. There must have been something yeah. moving that basically created that. And I mean, congratulations to people like Peter Gagan, um, who <clears throat> were the, the, the kind of and the Good Law Project, who yes. sat and beavered away on that and just kept, kept going. Uh, you know, there's there's many things when you listen to the chronology of what of what this is all about, that is just I mean, it's it's extraordinary that that actually so much of what was produced was completely useless. Yeah. I think it was it was at the surgical gowns that were all rejected by the Department yeah. of Health. A hundred and twenty two million pounds worth of surgical gowns made somewhere in the Far East that were rejected as useless immediately by the Department of Health. You can take your pick of the things that would make you absolutely sick about this. And yeah, the fact that she lied. Yeah. Um, clearly, she actually approached Michael Gove and set this company up just four days or something after the, you know, the kind of plea for 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 PPE came out. The v, the, the you know the secret VIP fast lane was used. Um, all of this is is nauseating. The lying, the fact that you know so much of the equipment, 122 million pounds worth of surgical gowns. Uh, was useless and was declared useless immediately by the Department of Health. And she was still in bidding for more stuff, despite the fact that the stuff she got was crap. And people were dying. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, it just it all kind of utterly beggars belief. But, you know, the, the thing is, w- within all of that, she's, you know, people will now look and I see there's a few people, you know, saying, oh, yeah, you know, she should be struck out of the House of Lords. Well, you know. If you mm. have an upper chamber that is simply a vehicle for promoting cronies, and that's all the House of Lords is about, you're going to get so many wrong That's what it's about. You know, it's kind of it, it's predicated on that level of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours cronyism. And I mean, Hamza Yusuf, again, is the only one who's got this right. Abolish the House of Lords. The rest yep. of it is just so much rubbish. Um, and as far as she's, you know, personally concerned now, I mean, she's like a complete laughingstock. And the trouble is, just as you say, she 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 provides endless distraction because, you know, all the stuff that's come out now, there's a thing going around in the National where they even had a go at the National because she made some claim that yes. Einstein had lived in her house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they've pointed out he sort of didn't, you know, her house in <laughs> Scotland. And she then had a go at them and I think had the legal department on her. I mean, it's just it's crazy. And if anybody wants a total laugh, have a look at Janie Godley's parody of Michelle Moon mm. on that interview. It is absolutely hysterical. Basically, it's so like her. But see, meanwhile, back at the fort, just as you say, that the, the horrible aspect of this whole thing is that she's just the kind of tip of the iceberg and yeah. she's the visible one and big, big thing. The media covered it up. Yeah. They could have had a look at there was any amount of fishiness around her that people could have picked on if they had been arsed. And they simply weren't. 
still when I'm listening to, you know, Radio Scotland or whatever, they're picking their way through it, sort of saying alleged this. And, you know, I mean, there's points where you sometimes do have to come in and with the person being criticised isn't present. But, you know, there are matters of fact here about much of this and uh, it, the the in unwillingness of anybody on. Well, actually, it's not just the BBC, but. You know, I think STV, I don't think any of them ever treated this as a story and basically had any kind of, you know, examination into it. It it gives you again, it stands for what is not seen behind, you know, the the kind of glamorous facade of, you know, broken Britain. Yeah, I mean, and it is, as I say, the 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 the, the other aspect of it as well is. That you've quite clearly stated is the fact that it's the underlying iceberg. But it is what Naomi Klein referred to. I remember reading the book, The Shock Doctrine, going right back to disaster capitalism, where these spivs will spot a disaster, a natural disaster mm. or COVID, and think to themselves, there's a quick buck to be made here. And it was listening to Barrowman when he actually said, uh, well, we made a, a 30% return on, you know, which was a, a reasonable return for the risk we were actually taking. And, of course, she is the blooming gift that keeps giving. This is what is quite, you know, she, she also hasn't learned this because she's not really part of the crew and has been now disowned by the Tory party. And actually, that's another thing, because I was listening through to something on Radio Scotland and actually looked at the chronology of it. They were still doing this sort of fairly tired old interview about, oh, Michelle Moan, isn't she a bit of a one? When the Conservative Party had basically sacked her. Nope, that wasn't in there. When she'd kind of started lashing out at everybody, you know, Gove and kind of, you know, the, if she's going down, she's taking everybody with her. So she hasn't kind of because there's, there's, there's nothing you've got on her because she's just not one of the gang. Um, and and then this extraordinary moment where Lord Bethel, who's one of the people mm. who, in, in re- relation to the COVID inquiry, um, he's another of the people who mysteriously discovered that his text messages had disappeared. And then suddenly he came back to Michelle Moan's defence, uh, sharing a text message from October 2020 about her company which was in the same time period where apparently he'd had a blooming phone meltdown. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of extraordinary how these guys are just beginning to pull themselves. It's almost as if this has now got its own gravity, you know, like it's 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 pulling more and more of them down the hole that they all thought they'd avoided. You know, they thought the problem area was over there, small boats territory, anybody. <laughs> and then. You know, just when all the energy had been, and every, you know, Rishi Sunak. I mean, I don't think we've spoken since the small, did we? Since the small boats thing failed to materialise, I've got to say, Monty Python do have a, a song for everything. This is unquestionably brave. Sir Robin ran away when it came to the kind of right wing rebels that were going to take the government yes. down and everything, yeah. and then actually decided, well, they just keep their powder dry for another day, you know. So. Everyone, I think, thought, yeah, we've got their end of term. You know, it's been a bit tricky, but Rishi's still afloat and, you know, we live to fight another day. And then all this Michelle Moan stuff comes out. And I mean, there's nothing. Every bit of it is revolting, you know, really revolting stuff, actually. So, I mean, yeah, God love them. And and let's see what, you know, the next day holds as Michelle Moan kind of lashes out again. Yeah. Well, and the thing about it, it it, it brings couple of things together you you 
you were talking about, Leslie, in terms of uh, the media coverage, and particularly what well, we did mention specifically the BBC, and uh, the, the, the falling out that's going on with the Conservative Party, where you have the, the five families. I mean, it's how many Conservative parties there actually are now. I mean, so when you have Nadine Dorries stepping into the fray with the story that Alan Rusbridger has been pursuing mercilessly for the past few months was a little little known piece in, in Doris's book where she claimed that she uh, after Paul Dacre who was Johnson's pick to become head of Ofcom that fell through because apparently Dacre was absolutely appalling at the interview they then came down to a choice between two Tory peers Lord Grade and uh, someone who was described as a long-standing party apparitchik, Stephen Gilbert. And within the framework, if you're going to have to pick between two Tory peers, Lord Great has an immense track record in terms of broadcasting in the media, and a very good track record in terms of broadcasting in the media against someone, the Stephen Gilbert, that nobody had ever heard of. And Robbie Gibb, who was in, uh, in charge of uh, the... B, I was a non-executive director with the BBC, according to Nandine Dorries, stepped in to strong arm her to try and get Stephen Gilbert appointed to be uh, the head of Ofcom. And according to Dorries, it didn't work. So up steps Manira Mirza, who'd worked under Johnson, her husband, Dougie Smith, and they tried to intimidate and bully her. Grade's name went forward. And then, lo and behold, the next allegation is that uh, she got a tip off that something scandalous had happened. Uh, the note that she'd left in the, the box for, for Johnson saying that it was Lord Great had been interfered with and someone else's name was in there. So there's this whole tie up of the position that we've spoken about before of Tory placemen and women right across civic society and the infiltration that has clearly taken place within the BBC and that revolving door that you have between the Conservative Party and significant areas of our national life, especially the BBC. Yeah, it's it is extraordinary. And I, I mean, again, if, if somebody sits and looks basically the timelines of a lot of the stuff that happened, I mean, just jumping back to Michelle Moen, you know, that. I mean, as as Peter Gagan, the freelance journalist, Scottish-based, um, Irish-born Peter, uh, did do. You know, it's it's yes, they 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 bought this. They have this yacht. There was pictures of of Michelle Moen swanning around the yacht, and that was at the point that you know this was after all their PPE deals, and just as a matter of fact, a hundred thousand people were dead. So I I mean, people may say mm. this is not a fair thing to kind of you know run across. Those are the kind of connections that will stay in people's minds forever, basically. So anyway, hell mend them. I mean, it, it's all of this stuff. It, there's that. There's having a VIP fast lane. There's yes. the problem. There's the problem. So you can sort of flap around about Michelle Moon, and she's certainly an attractive character for a you know the verbal <laughs> attack mode. But the but it's not, you know, to get away from personalities, because that's where everything founders yeah. in British society is the VIP fast lane was the enabler. You know, the House of Lords was an enabler. And yes, I mean, this this kind of level of Tory party behaviour, that's all enabling so that somebody walks through the door. If it wasn't her, it would have been somebody else. Yes. And 
who's asking, who's demanding now? Well, I mean, I think we're all assuming that the Tories are toast anyway. But so evidently on many, many things, the Labour Party is coming in and absolutely just, you know, mimicking the patterns. Of course, they'll say they're not going to have VIP fast lanes. But, you know, there's so much of, of, of what's being offered that isn't kind of extracting from our system this kind of notion of preference. And, of course, in order to be able to get their stuff through the House of Lords, and because you can't yes. get shot of these, they're, they're going to have to put more in. You know, so yeah. the, the terrible irony is if you don't, it's like lies. You know, if you don't, once you start, you're stuffed because you have to keep feeding the lie. And the lie that is the, the notion that an unelected chamber of cronies is a good piece of governance for the UK, that lie will continue because Labour will have to promote uh, more and more and more people into the House of Lords to try and counteract the cronies that have been swanned in by the Tories. I mean, God damn it. No wonder a gal doesn't wash question time. <laughs> and if we circle back to our starting point for a moment, which was the Scottish budget, uh, Wes Streeting, when he was being interviewed, I think it was on Kunzberg as well. There's another Kunzberg, Trevor Phillips, turned around and said that uh, if you want to spend more on the NHS, and of course he was, he actually threw out the appalling accusation that they were playing the uh, winter crisis card in order to secure more funding. We were we're going to have to the Labour Party. If we want to spend on the NHS, we're going to have to spend less on other things. For example, the royal family. And you're thinking, do you know what? Have we actually got to the point, again, that orthodoxy that takes place is that we've got a fixed budget and we're going to stick to this and we're going to stick to conservative spending plans and we're going to stick to all of this. So what we'll actually get is a more competent more can possibly slightly more compassionate version of that which we already have. It will be better run, but it will still be exactly the same privatised Britain that we are currently part of. And streeting is a perfect example of that. We can't afford to fund the NHS because you've got to spend on other things. Well, stop spending. You're making your political choices. It's exactly what Shona Robinson spoke about when she actually delivered uh, delivered the budget. But that being said, when you actually, I mean, we talked about Rishi Sunak there and the boats. I was wondering to myself, at what point have we actually reached in the generation of the Conservative Party as a centre-right party into a far-right party where Rishi Sunak can actually speak uh, in Italy to uh, the uh, at the Etruja uh, conference, which is the Fratelli d'Italia, that's Giorgio Maloney's mobs uh, annual conference, uh, bizarrely set up because of her fondness for the never-ending story and the uh, the underlying message that was contained within it. But he spoke there where he turned around and said, enemies could use immigration as a weapon by deliberately driving people out of shore to try and destabilise our society. And it was clear and obvious from this that Sunak's best pal currently in Europe is Giorgio Maloney with our far-right government. And in fact, in terms of migration, the proposals that the Conservative government have come up with are further to the right and more reactionary than those that Maloney's Fratelli d'Italia have come up with. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, it is, it's extraordinary. But I guess you would need to have, uh, you know, Italian politics well in your mind to be able to benchmark quite what that says uh, about Rishi yes. Sunak. You know, um, although he seems to be, 
you know, he always seems to be a bit rooty Nepal's when he goes to other kind of international yes. events. But, you know, it, it, it's 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 just extraordinary when you look as well, though, at the stuff that impacts us in a sense more immediately. Because, OK, I don't know what he thought he was going to get from going to Italy. Yeah. I mean, this is the country that basically he and the Tory government should have paid attention to back in the day when they had the most appalling COVID outbreak. Yes. And somehow the, you know, Boris Johnson et al, including Rishi Sunak, thought that it wasn't going to apply to us because Italy was different or rather Mm -hmm. to get it really to the point, Britain is different from everybody. So there's no, you know, there was no kind of thought that there was anything of any usefulness to, to be extracted from a society so different from ours somehow in their brains. How does he think? I don't know how he thinks that actually that particularly helps him unless it's this endless five tribes within the Tory party. It makes him look like a bit of a hard man for going and speaking to a kind of, you know, a, a right a right wing Italian leader um, whose supporters have got direct links to the past of Mussolini. Yes. So, you know, maybe that's just all that's about is just trying to get brownie points with your right wingers. Meanwhile, back at the fort, you know, in the real domain of where, you know, Gaza, which is endlessly hanging over everything this year. And I mean, it's changed our lives, I think, in the same way as, you know, the invasion of Ukraine changed everybody. Although you don't see so many Palestinian flags, you still see Ukrainian flags all over Scotland, you know, when you're moving about. Uh, although I was actually in Glasgow and that whole area from the concert hall down towards the subway station, it's got a permanent sort of set of stalls, basically Palestinian related stalls, you know, very permanent looking ones with proper rain covers and everything that you you would need for the way our climate's gone. Um, so it feels like it's kind of there's, it's sort of breathing a bit of a settled will for Upper Buchanan Street, which, of course, is you know, shopping central at the moment. So there's this strange mixture in a way of people going around doing their Christmas retail therapy amongst people who are now every aspect of Palestinian culture and politics and, you know, whatever is is being promoted and goods for sale and stuff like that. You're really in the middle of Glasgow, which, you know, I thought was really striking. And so all of this is kind of happening for Scots and for especially folk in Glasgow, Scotland's obviously main city. You've got this kind of incredible situation. Um, And again, Stephen Flynn really putting his finger on the inability now. David Cameron um, now talking about some sort of sustainable ceasefire. So here we are, more weasel words. Keir Starmer beginning to kind of change his language a little bit and and uh, potentially Rishi Sunak. As as we get to this a dreadful stage where the Israeli Defence Force shot three unarmed surrendering uh, captives, Israeli captives who had managed to escape bare chested to prove they were not suicide bombers, white wearing a carrying a white flag, you know, from a building that had SOS written on the side of it. I mean, OK, hindsight is a great thing. But I mean, so many people have pointed out that they shot, presumably, because they would have shot Palestinians under those circumstances. Yes. And that, I mean, quite apart from you cannot even get near imagining what that's like for the relatives of those three men who had somehow managed to you know, survive their imprisonment get away and you'd you'd imagine that would not be an easy situation to be on the run from captors in that situation 
only to be shot. And then the third guy that managed to escape and go into a building. Mm-hmm. God, I mean, I don't know how you handle that in your mind. But this, you know, now we've got to a situation where Netanyahu and the, the kind of project it looks for many Israelis clearly detached from the objective of getting the, the, the hostages back because it clearly doesn't seem to matter more than the constant battle to get what to get Hamas crushed, if that could even be done, which, again, um, there's a tremendous um, online paper. Well, it's a real paper, doubtless, in Israel Haaretz. Yes. So many of the sources in Israel saying we don't think this can be done. Um, so at what cost now? You know, with a vote tonight, it was postponed um, in the UN Security Council and apparently that's good news that it was it was postponed because the presumption is that it's looking for a form of words that will allow the United States not to veto it. And it looks like, you know, again, it's the word ceasefire that's um, that's that's going to have to be out because that word is the one that the the, the Americans won't agree with. But cessation, cessation of violence, I think, is the one that people are looking mm-hmm. for. Well, it amounts to the same thing. Once that gets through, I mean, you know, the Brits tonight cannot abstain and they cannot vote against this. And if they do, you know, I mean, you know, there's nothing you can threaten. But I mean, what the you can't even say what you think about that because we would be you can't put enough mm-hmm. swearies into it. But also the lack of wisdom of political leaders south of the border, all of them, all of them. Including even, you know, the the, the the Lib Dems. It's only because Leila Moran yes. has actually got rallies in Gaza and has been very clear sighted and brave and taken all sorts of appalling pelters. But, you know, she's describing a situation. I mean, you, you were mentioning, um, you know, it's not just that there was these three, these the, the three captives that were killed. Yeah. Yes, well, what's happened is that the uh, it's referred to as the Christian Church, but I mean there has been a Christian tradition in Palestine since dot. I mean that's why. I mean when I I, I heard uh, I heard people referring to uh, Muslims uh, versus Jews. No, it, it it's Palestinians and the and Israelis, and it, there's the the church has been under siege, and um, a woman and her daughter were shot by Israeli snipers. The Archbishop of Westminster, Catholic Archbishop of Westminster, said this has happened. Uh, the Latin, the Latin uh, uh, patriarch uh, it says this is what happened. The Pope says this is what happened. International observers say this is what happened. But according to the Israelis, they are all lying in their teeth because the Israeli Defence Force does not shoot civilians. Well, let's just stop and think about what you just talked about earlier. They shot three of their own because they were they were unarmed. They came out with a white flag. They were bare chested and they shot them. So what makes you think that mm. they wouldn't shoot two women, one of whom was going to help the other because she'd been shot and the people are trapped in there. And John McDonald on um, politics today uh, was saying that something happens every day that is seared into his mind to do with what's going on that stays with them 
And that something happens every day. And that's what's happening to individuals right across the world. They're seeing something that happens every mm-hmm. day. I saw a photograph of, uh, I think it was a nine-month-old and a wee boy who'd been taken hostage. And I, I cannot get my head around that. Then I saw video footage of a wee lassie, 12-year-old. And she was she was talking about the fact that her whole family had been killed. And she'd lost the leg. Two days later, a bomb dropped her and killed her. And I think when the question that was asked, how many must die before it is too many? I pray to God that that, that is now permeating, particularly the United States, because it was said before, stop funding Israel. You can stop this now. Has it permeated through this is now too many, the 20,000 or, or, or how many? I sincerely hope it has. And uh, it's just a... Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it really is quite unwatchable. Yeah. And I think this is the thing. People are now saying this is like we're watching a genocide yes, and we're not doing anything about it. I mean, you, you cannot believe that this can possibly be. It's like a, a bit of you kind of can't you can't believe that you can possibly be watching what you're watching. Yeah. And and actually, the Leila Moran interview that Channel 4 News ran about the two uh, women who were killed and about the fact that her family are trapped in a church with snipers, Israeli force uh, soldiers surrounding it and basically shooting at anybody who tries to leave. Somebody came on from the IDF bristling with anger um, and just basically said she's lying. Yeah. We've heard these these conspiracy stories since the medi you know Middle Ages. Yes, the and blood it was libel. just it was even the yeah. fact that he wasn't even listening to her. He was trying to invoke some. Ah, yeah. I mean, the trouble is, if you get too far down this path, you begin to get into you know the the area where you, you don't want to get, which is the long history of persecution of Jewish people. Absolutely. But, but really, really watching that and seeing the kind of straight upness of Leila Moran not falling into any of the pitfalls that, you know, that, that, that she could you could understandably expect, just as Hamza Yusuf and his wife had managed to avoid that kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of blame game, essentially, that you could easily be be thinking about when your relatives are stuck in a situation where they yeah. could be killed. I mean, really, you've got compare and contrast right there between those two people and i think i know who 99.8 percent of people watching are believing and thus looking at the other speaker the idf and thinking i never actually will now believe a word you say yeah and this is where this is getting i mean weirdly as well i don't want to spoil this for anybody who hasn't watched the whole way through but there's a bbc scotland series vigil on at the moment um with Suran Jones, I'm always not sure if I pronounced her name properly. <laughs> um, and it's weird because it was obviously filmed before all of this happened. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't got to the end, but it basically does look at a situation where um, Brit- British arms, some of them being made in Scotland, are being exported into a country u- which is using it to suppress its essentially its own minorities. And the, the timeliness of it is quite gobsmacking because they couldn't have known. They filmed this before October the 7th. Um, but as you're watching it, the parallels really are quite astonishing. And the, when it comes down to it, 
the point still is, you know, that a lot of the, the demonstrations are now not just focusing on the political aspects on it, but the enduring fact of the size of British arms exports and yes. that of the United States. So that, you know, that will still sit. You know, the heat will maybe move off if there's any form of, um, you know, de-escalation or whatever they can come up with tonight with the UN Security Council. If, of course, the Israelis pay any attention I don't know what happens diplomatically if that level of American involvement is finally induced and there is still no attention paid at all. Then Israel is kind of right off out there. What does happen to the Americans? Will the pressure be to for them to stop supplying arms? And who will it come from, given that the Republicans are you know, on the move and don't mm-hmm. really rate this because they're they're not rating continuing you know, support for Ukraine unless they can manage to get yes. some quid pro quo about the, the border with Mexico. It's just such a blooming mess. But anyway, yes. amazing, really, if you're watching that, I'm sure other people will have, that vigils should be sort of completely anticipating this situation in much the same way as another, it was another BBC drama year after year, was utterly uncanny in predicting exactly the horribleness of the situation with the small boats before that became the disaster that it's, you know, turned out to be. Yep. And before we got on to, fingers crossed, something a, a bit cheerier when we, we take a, a wee look back at things that cheered us up over the over the shit show that's been 2023, we we asked uh, those of you who listened to, to pop any any thoughts you had, any experiences you'd had with Curriculum for Excellence. And and thanks to the, the number of you who got in touch, Leslie's got a wee bit of feedback to give on. I mean, your, your thoughts on your experiences of, of Curriculum for Excellence. Yeah, so there was Michael who has literally just stopped. You know, he was in school last year who got in touch. He's now a student in Edinburgh. And he, he thinks that basically the problem is that Curriculum for Excellence didn't go far enough, as in, uh, it was not, as I'm quoting him now, not really implemented in the senior end of things, the S4 to 6 examination phase. Um, he says that he was still doing, uh, basically studying past papers that were 30 years old. Um, and he thinks that the SQA are to blame and didn't seriously engage with revising their qualifications after the Curriculum for Excellence. And this is really fascinating because he said um, increasingly schools have been accessing better, more modern qualifications like daydream believers. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you, I've had the monkeys going on through my head yeah. since I started reading this, actually. But I had a wee look at daydream believers and it is uh, it's basically a kind of set of, um, qu- well, qualifications, teaching aids and various things from a it describes itself as a kind of series a group of, of, of educationists who basically wanted different kinds of ways of measuring achievement. So Daydream Believers is doing a national five standard grade and old money, a hiring creative thinking. And he said, this is what this is what Michael's saying. This is what we ought to be doing more of if we were really doing curriculum for excellence in basically the secondary school. So I think that's really fascinating. And he contributed to a review, the Hayward Review, um, which was proposing a Scottish Diploma of Achievement. And he said this could really help with realising the vision. Um, So that's fascinating. And it picks up on a wee thing we both noticed in an interview last week where some speaker, after they talked some pretty chewy stuff that didn't get you very far, had basically said the problem is the lack of reform of the qualification system and the SQA. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, Michael is giving a complete thumbs up to that. Um, and he kind of says, um, so he, his message with the Scottish government is finish implementing curriculum for excellence. Right. It's done a lot of good in the early years, but to get it to do it in the secondary years, it involves rocking the boat, moving away from exams in the way that universities generally have. Yes, it'll be hard. Sure, you can already hear the Tories calling it bonkers and Labour slyly endorsing them, but it's essential. And then he says, so you can probably tell why the Scottish government has been so reluctant to act. So there's one very, very interesting thought. Another from James, who's been a secondary teacher for 15 years, now out of it in a different job. And he's basically saying that uh, there was no time as a department to discuss the switch. And mm -hmm. uh, it was um, so there was no time to get out of the subject silo and cross fertilize with other subjects. And he gives this great example. He said, I taught Vikings to first years and I went to home economics on a whim to arrange for my class to visit that department to make and taste Viking food. Might have been a shocker, might not. Mm -hmm. um, and he said that depended on me buying the ingredients, the home economics teacher giving up her time. And remember, she's working the maximum hours teaching yes. contract in her own subject already. And as such, required quite a lot of goodwill all way, way round. And that was for one lesson so that every lesson was meant to have, you know, yeah. sort of bows and whistles on it. And each of them would have required them to have time that they didn't have. So he said, my experience was that whilst curriculum for excellence is admirable and ambitious, it didn't come with the time, resources and ability to work collegiately. And there was no funding to manage the transition to other topics. And finally, there's just one here from Paul who his worry is about his daughter just having no homework. And he says, we've asked every day of her secondary school career whether she's getting homework. And uh, basically, she's now in about S4, still nothing. And he says, this infuriates me, though. He says, my experience may be coloured by my own age. I'm 57. <laughs> and mm. perhaps the different models sweeping into education that's basically anti-homework might be the thing that's there in the future. So thank you, all of you, because, I mean, you know, each of these makes me think, oh, you could easily spend another day trying to delve into all the you know, points that were of interest uh, in there. But thanks very much for everybody chipping in. I feel a lot the wiser, but sort of still, boy, each of these things deserves just an awful lot more focus. Yeah. And it goes back to that whole thing of if people can see clearly what needs to be done, why isn't it being done and what vested interests and entrenchment there is that, that might might prevent it from happening? Well, it's and just it, it's, but it's a time it's, it's a time and resources thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. you know, it's funny because I sort of remember when I came when we crossed the water from Belfast in 1973 and came. My brother went to the local comprehensive Um you know, I can remember discussions then because Northern Ireland didn't have, obviously, comprehensive. So no. we were very alert to this. And whilst we thought this was the bee's knees, you know, everybody going to the same school, the criticism even then was that it wasn't comprehensive enough. Yeah. You know, and sort of it's this thing that you can't reach dry land unless you really, really do do these things properly. And so a half a curriculum for excellence without the time, you know, and without with an exam structure that still harks yes, back it, to the yeah. days of yore. I'm sort of getting that picture of it now. So anyway, thank you, folks, if that roughly you think that's roughly right. If we're well sort of, you know, off beam, 
that'll be us again. Um, and just there was another email that came from uh, now I haven't got just taking the name off. See my thing was Stephen, maybe not. But he was just saying, generally speaking, um, you know, he said, I live in an environment where many of the people around me are a bit traditional um, in their views. And he said, I feel slightly isolated. Um, so many times listening to the podcast, I've thought, thank good, it isn't just me. <laughs> and at least somebody's questioning um, things. And it gives me some com- comfort, to be honest. So I hope that's true for other folk, actually, you know, because it definitely likewise gives a bit of comfort back when you guys respond. Yeah. And, and before we go on to the, the cheery up things, I mean, talking about comfort, um, it is coming to that time of year, Leslie, uh, and you, you, you've spoken about it very movingly in the fact that uh, for a lot of people, it's it's great fun. It's very enjoyable. It's a family time, which can be stressful. But in the main, you hope it would be great. But there's a, a lot of folk on their own, isn't there? Well, there is. And you see, the thing is, every this year, at point in the year, you get, you know, fairly formulaic things trotted out about people on their own, people who are homeless for the while. And it's great that there is a lifting of people's minds a little towards those kind of, you know, bits of isolation. But there's more and more people living on their own. I'm very conscious of it. I do. Um, I've also lost a very close friend in the last two years. And at this time of year, there's a it's very difficult for a lot of people to stay up emotionally um, because everything is about family and you know, I feel very lucky to have great contacts with my extended step family. But I'm also very conscious that if they do, if you're not speaking, if you're distant or if you never had a family of your own, you will feel very much like you just don't belong when you look at the kind of emphasis that there is on togetherness. And even the songs in shops as you go in, you know, everything is about people coming home from Christmas. That is it Chris DeBurr? I can't remember who it is. It's chugging along on that Chris, one. Chris Rhea. Chris Rhea. Yeah. So sorry, Chris Rhea. You should never, yeah, never be confused oh, with me. Chris But anyway, so, I mean, this is just to say to anyone listening who's feeling like that. I mean, what can you say except that we we are, in a sense, you're part of a community, even if you're sitting on your own now. You're part of the community, obviously, that listens to this podcast. But that is just a part of a larger community. And that is people who have got their hopes up for this country and have decided that there's no going back and have seen what they've seen, thought what they've thought and are willing to kind of adhere to, or have either had it bred into them or have come to Scotland and um, and admired the kind of, uh, you know, civic nature of this country and have adopted an outlook that that really is what we're for as people. We're trying to build this country in a better way. We're taking pelters. We're taking distractions. We're taking disappointments. There will be more next year. And we're seeing them for what they are, which is stuff along the way. It's all stuff along the way. Your part, whatever situation you have yourself, you're part of a group of people who have created a path and we're all moving along it all the time. At Christmas, New Year, all these significant dates, we're all together on that one. So I hope you feel that because it's a horrible thing to feel isolated and I wish I could hug you all seriously. 
I actually, I could hug quite a few of you if you do come. Yeah, oh, <laughs> you know, this is yes, yeah, seamless, done. seamless stuff. But actually, this is part of the purpose yeah. of things like the Denmark film, because it's a chance for everybody to kind of come together in a way. Because it's it's and, and take people who are needing a bit of persuading, but it's to get into that zone, back into the zone of some optimism in the midst of everything else. And I should just say a massive thank you to well Scottish Independence Foundation, to Simon Forrest, who co-funded doing the film in the first place, um, but also to the people, the cinemas who are putting it on and to the yes groups and particular organisers who have just worked their socks off to just get, for example, the Dundee venue, which is a big venue, the Steps Theatre, is already half booked out. The uh, Dumfries venue is almost completely full. I mean, these are for events the other side of New Year. I kind of was astonished that anybody, you know, just astonished. So why don't you come? You know, if you can afford it and a lot of the prices are three pounds just seriously to make sure things don't get overbooked on Eventbrite and then we have half the place sitting empty. It would be lovely to see everybody. Uh, it always is. And it's another chance to look forward for this country and you're part of it. And. You slipped in earlier, Leslie, and it's it's one of one of these things that you said you've been in a, in and out of hospital. And I'm aware of what's been going on. I'm aware of the the outcomes of this. But again, because it is a community, I think would you, would you mind actually telling people? Because I'm sure they'd be desperate to to find out how you're actually doing. Oh well, actually, well, thanks as well for people getting in touch. It's just um, I have an autoimmune condition called vasculitis. It was diagnosed ten years ago in the indie ref when I had chemotherapy for it, which was a bit of a livener trying to get around to stuff. <laughs> and it's been managed pretty well since then. A couple of the indicators are going a bit the wrong way. So I needed to have a biopsy of the kidney to sort of see whether there's active vasculitis happening or not. And if so, mm, we haven't really discussed what happens next, but one thing at a time. Uh, so the problem was when I got admitted the first time, my blood pressure was through the roof and I mean, this has been a total blooming revelation to me. Almost everybody I meet is already on blood pressure medication. I mean, I was vexed thinking that I had to go on to it to simply pull the blood pressure down to be able to have this procedure. And in fact, it was cancelled another time because it was still too high. So I'm now blooming wading through horse tablets and stuff. <laughs> but it does make me wonder a bit of me, you know, I would love to have a set of clones. I could set five of them going simultaneously looking at stuff that is of interest. But one is why is hypertension so common amongst people, you know, in the over 50 bracket? Because people I meet who are the fittest folk I know um, are just quietly say, oh, yes, I've been on blood pressure stuff for 10 years. Right. So if you're not, Pat. No, I'm not. Well, there you are. You're yeah, trying yourself. Maybe I should be. Well, you know, this is what you do begin to wonder, actually, yeah. because, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have known. I mean, yeah. they, you know, they do famously call this the silent killer, but I, I do have my blood pressure taken um, and it was taken two months earlier. So it can change pretty darn quickly. I blame I blame question time. I watched yes. it for 30 seconds one night, you know, and I just think yeah. that blooming yep. kippered me, you know. But anyway, thanks to everyone for asking. I'm so blooming relieved to have got that thing done. And they've got, you know, there's so much bad said about the about the NHS. Yeah. They doggedly 
you know, just kept booking, booking me back in. My doctor actually phoned with a suggestion about how to have the horse tablets to try and have the most impact on that morning blood pressure because it would be the one that count. Mm-hmm. He phoned me out of the blue. I was sitting having a coffee with somebody. Shouldn't have had a coffee. Yeah, obviously. I was about to say, yeah. um, <laughs> it was my one coffee of the day. Um, and she was absolutely amazed. I had a doctor who would sit and turn over a problem like that in his mind and then just phone out of the blue to come up with something to just try and get the show on the road. So that I know one, you know, anecdotal example doesn't gainsay actual statistics. But on the other hand, we hear a lot of anecdotes, you know. So, um, so no, I feel 100% cared for within the NHS here. And the thing I think you would feel if any of you have, have got crocked in any of the many ways that one is crocked in life, the thing you're, you, you kind of I hold on to is there's nothing better I could have done. Yeah. There is nowhere else I could have gone. There's no better advice I could have had. There's nothing better could have happened. If there's any bad outcome to this now, the best possible things happened to me. And that is like a hundred percent. Thank you for asking. No, 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 no. But as I say, I did promise that we were going to be cheery. That was cheery. We did promise we were going to be cheery at the end. And uh, we had a discussion about this, folks. And uh, Leslie said, well, you you come up with yourself. So politically, politically, my two high points have been the return of intelligent muscular trade unionism as exemplified by Mick Lynch. I thought that, that that just boosted my spirits every time that man spoke, every time he reacted to the to to what was being thrown at him, his ability to think on his feet, his knowledge, everything. And he was just the, an example amongst many. But Mick Lynch is the one who stood out there as the return of trade unionism, the way I remember it used to be. And Stephen Flynn, the uh, what he has shown with the zingers, the flingers that he comes up with, the 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 questions that he comes up with at Prime Minister's Question Time, in addition to the way he's spoken out of, about the great moral issues of our time, such as immigration and uh, Gaza, and uh, brilliantly done at PMQs, uh, so much so he's even getting grudging respect and mentions on uh, national radio and television programmes. These are my two political highlights there. Uh, musically, I could recommend, and people may not have heard of him, uh, The Rest is History. Uh, it's Thomas Walsh, who was in a band called Pub- Pugwash, still involved with that. Dublin singer-songwriter, absolutely brilliant. If you like the Beatles, if you like XTC, he's your man. He is involved with Neil Hannon uh, of the Divine Comedy uh, in the Duckworth Lewis method. And I'm going to see Wonka, where the music has been written by, therefore mentioned Neil Hannon. Television series, Mortimer and White House, Gone Fishing which is just an absolute delight. And if you're looking to have your blood pressure reduced and uh, it's just a, it's just a wonderful programme and they do return the fish at the end. And that's on BBC. If you have Disney Plus, um, Only Murders in the Building, the third series is just just finished. Uh, Martin Shore, uh, Steve Martin, Selena Gomez, brilliantly done, great acting, lots of heart to it. Movies this year wasn't as wasn't as entertaining as before. Uh, two small British movies which I adored: Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris and The Great Escaper. And it's a funny kind of thing you mentioned, Leslie, about something catching the moment, whether they knew it or not. The Creator, which is a big blockbusting sci-fi movie, 
which actually explores the other, explores refugees, explores colonialism, explores American militarism, explores militarism in, it, in its sense as well. So that that was the recommendation. Those are the three the three films there, as well as Bullet Train. But we'll keep quiet about that because that's an absolute mayhem of a shoot 'em up. Which is which is which I shouldn't laugh at, but it was brilliantly done and 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 highly entertaining. So um, and as I said to you, books. If you're going to think about books for me, other than the fact of what I do read quietly, but new books, I am very lowbrow in my genres. I go for crime and I go for uh, yeah, I go for crime and historical novels, and I won't recommend any of them to you because you just laugh at me. So any thoughts on your cheery uppers, Leslie? Well, well, that's quite a list. <laughs> um, well, yes, on this, you know, Stephen Flynn. Yep, he's absolutely hit the ground running and all of that. I mean, I've, I've still got to say the moment of the year for me on the political front, simply because I was there, was the moment that Hamza Yusuf leapt off the platform in Dundee and went yeah. and dealt with the, the woman that was interrupting him. I mean, you did have to be there and only a thousand people were. So the five million, whatever it was, who were not there will be going, what? And I'm sure a lot of people will still think, you know, Hamza, is he doing mm-hmm. very well? Is he not? But, I mean, you still, it's one of these things that seeing something actually happen, physically happen in front of your very eyes like that is kind of creates a motor memory that is very hard to unpick. So that when you see anybody talking about their ability to conciliate, negotiate, mm-hmm. and then you see an actual guy ready to disrupt his maiden speech to try and achieve that you know it does actually make quite an impact on you i don't know how things are going you know it, there's there's con there's, i think i think there's constant ministerial problems and i think he was he made a mistake not sacking michael matheson yes but i mean over the piece he hasn't fallen to pieces as many people expected i'm not sure how much better any of the you know um, other candidates would have been and he's there. So for better or worse, I, you know, I, I quite appreciate the saying anything positive about an SNP first minister <laughs> yeah. opens you up to all sorts of accusations of naivety. And I'm not this is not wholesale praise, as as I've just noted, there's an inability within the SNP that has not changed with with Hamza to basically lay out a bigger set stall that takes on the bigger building blocks of what keeps Scotland down. And without doing that, you are only, you know, window dressing. And yet with with that bold remarks he made basically about Gaza and the the kind of eloquence of it, I think that has also reached a lot of people, Mm -hmm. which was unexpected. So, you know, something around that stays in my mind. Um, All the other person, when I was thinking about this, all the other moments I've got are incredibly personal seeing my grandson for the first time um the excitement of the year unquestionably swimming all over the coasts of scotland i mean god damn it when i was wee we used to get thrown into the water at dunnet bay and caithness and all sorts of really freezing beaches and it sort of stayed in your mind as a kind of we really have to but once you get into the zone with it it's just you come out you know of Staxago beach up near wick uh, of Shandwick Bay in Easter Ross. And when you come out after 20 minutes in the sea, you think you're in the Mediterranean. It's not that. You are in the Mediterranean. <laughs> it's the most <laughs> mind-altering thing you can do for a girl that doesn't drink. So all of that I thought was absolutely brilliant. And um, 
the thing of the year for me in any sort of filmy type, whatever it is, ways is definitely Slow Horses, which is um, oh, on yes. Apple TV. Yes. My God, that's great. We started watching it a couple of years ago, actually. Well, whenever it first came out, um, actually. And within the family, it's become a bit of a thing that we all watch that together. It's now codenamed the Tardy Ponies. Um, so we're watching it across all the different time zones and places that we are. Gary Oldman, Mike, it's just, I mean, all of mm-hmm. them are so deadpan. It's the only thing I can watch about London that doesn't descend into the sort of core blimey stuff that's really yeah. quite irritating. It's shabby. It's down at heel. It's kind of people just trying to make the best of a pretty venal kind of world. And yet just these little links of sort of some bits of solidarity amongst the ingrained sort of sarcasm and cynicism that really, you know, besets that little bit of the world. So, yeah, slow horses. Excellent. Yes, well, we we've managed successfully, I think, in the uh, the last edition of 2023 to come up with this what is probably the longest podcast that we've done indefinitely in 2023 and possibly ever. So right. <laughs> yes, so just just from just from us here, as you say, here, broad Christmas, enjoy yourselves, no too much on Hogmanay, with Kim that you folk are like, and safe and happy holidays to everybody. Especially to actually all our subscribers and to the man who kicked us up the butt and got this whole thing put on a professional footing, the coach. And on that, we'll see you next year, chums. <laughs>